And I'm recording. Yeah. All right. Um, well, I am. Um, I do have handouts. Where are they? All right. Um, I've, uh, I've, I've been excited about this topic um, because really the issue of revelation uh, affects everything. And uh, not the least of which my thesis. So this has been on my mind for a very, very, very long time, as you can imagine. Now, one thing as we get into this, and I wish I had about 10 years to talk about the subject of Revelation, but I don't. Uh, so what I want to do is give you a little bit of background even before we get to my notes. Um, how many of you have, re- have heard, I'm sure you've heard or know the name Rene Descartes? Rene Descartes. All right. Uh, he had that famous phrase. What was it that Rene Descartes said? Does anybody know? I think, therefore, I am. Um, now, essentially what he was saying is, I must exist because I have a thinking process. Now, that sounds nice, sounds like a pretty good, you know, logical deduction. However, what he did in making that statement was set himself up, was set a human being as a knower up as the center of knowledge. Whereas before it was, um, God created me, so I exist. Or, Maybe we would say, um, I can, there, there is a plant over there, so the plant must exist. Now, the human knower is the center of knowledge. And so we had, what, we, what was coming out at the time was this idea of the enlightenment, where the human being was the center of knowledge. Not the object of knowledge itself, but you, as the knowing person, was the center. That was a big, big problem. And as soon as that came about, all of a sudden then, it's not what God says about himself, it's what do you think about God. Uh, that is a huge, huge problem that we continue to deal with. Uh, the radical individualism that we see in American culture is directly connected with Rene Descartes saying, I think, therefore I am. Not that he was necessarily a completely bad guy, but we have a lot of problems that trace back. So, what I'm going to do is trace through a few different views of Revelation, there we go, and I went back too much, sorry. If I hit delete, will it go back? Up arrow and down arrow, sorry. Not used to the uh, Max yet. Um, that's right, that's exactly right. <laughs> if I had the chance to just use my typewriter and a, a pencil, I think that would probably fit me very well. Uh, now what we have, uh, coming out of the Enlightenment, we have this fellow named Immanuel Kant. Um, Now, what we're going to talk about here is some false views of revelation. All of these directly connected to the Enlightenment idea that human being, or that I am the center of knowledge as opposed to the object of knowledge. We're going to talk more about what that means. By the way, we're going to be talking about some philosophy here that leads us to theology. Um, Well, topically. Um, So please uh, ask questions. I don't... I don't always slow down because this is something I'm excited about, so interrupt me. Throw your hand up if there's a question. Uh, But we have this fellow, Immanuel Kant. Now, Immanuel Kant believed in this whole idea that man was the center of knowledge, but he wanted to know God. He developed this idea, though, that there um, there was two different realms of knowledge. There was the noumenal realm and the phenomenal realm. Okay. Now, in his mind, the noumenal realm was the realm of realities. God and the self and things existed in the noumenal realm. The phenomenal realm, I know this gets a little complicated, the phenomenal realm was the realm of what you actually had a a grasp of. Um, And it was kind of strange, but essentially what he believed was we had these uh, innate categories of the mind. That there was this, it was almost like there was this logical system within your brain, uh, a lot like a... um, a lot like a puzzle or a maze, like Tetris. And uh, imagine that, there's, that your brain is a mold, and you get information into the brain, but your brain already has the idea of a table. And so the information comes into your brain, and it might not actually be a table, but it's kind of like a table, and so you push that information. Your brain actively gives it order. Now, in his mind, the universe did not have its own order, so your brain had to make up order for it. That's interesting. Does that make sense? It shouldn't make total sense because it's kind of confusing. Um, He believed that the brain essentially changed the knowledge that was coming in through your eyes and ears. That essentially the brain had to give order because the universe didn't have its own order already. 
Now, why is that a problem? Why would it be a problem that your brain actively gives order? Because isn't it good to have order? Why is it a problem that your brain gives order to the information? Potentially so. You're creating your own reality. Um, there's an even, that's absolutely right. There's an even greater problem. And that's, that's this idea that, okay, then the universe must not have order. What happened then? How did God create a universe that doesn't have order? And in that way, how are we going to know it? How are we going to know God? Exactly. Well, that's why he's saying... Exactly. It makes you God. It makes you God in a certain realm. Now, Khan was not necessarily wanting to go to the full extent, but this is, this is what's happening by his logic. Yeah. And his idea that there, there was some type of reality there where the table is, but your brain, as the sensory information was coming in through your eyes and ears and touch, um, that as it's coming in, that your brain kind of has to take that information and say, uh, it's not really fully ordered, so I've got to put it into a mold. Um, there was a reality there, but it wasn't necessarily fully ordered as your mind orders the table. It's a little confusing. Not necessarily, although certainly that makes us make sense. He he would say, um, I think to an extent, but I don't think he would carry that through universally. Um, we'll talk more about why. Um, but one important thing to know is that in his view, God was part of the noumenal realm. In the noumenal realm, you couldn't know. Uh, he, he had this wonderful uh, phrase called the ding on seek, uh, which meant the thing in itself. You could kind of know things, because there's a reality that's there behind the table, but I'm not really knowing it as it is. I'm not really knowing it as it is on its own. I'm knowing it as my mind shapes it. So in his mind, you might know God kind of, but only as you interpret it. Um, there's a lot of problems behind this kind of thinking. And what's interesting, yeah, it's, it's a little confusing, by the way. It's all right if you don't get it completely. I, I didn't for a long time. But it's important that you know this name, Immanuel Kant, and you know that he radically affected our view of knowledge. Yeah? I don't know whether he was thinking this, but his view moved toward God. Yeah, now he would not have wanted that, I don't believe, but it was his thinking that, that caused that. Immanuel Kant actually had the, the opposite desire. He wanted to develop a way of knowing, but he was going on this idea of Newtonian physics where, there, where the universe didn't have its own order. It had to be imposed from the outside. And so he's, he's trying desperately to figure out how can we say, yes, we know things. And he believed in God. He wanted to know God. Um, but he was just radically limited by his worldview. Which, by the way, is always a problem when we put man's knowledge and man's scientific view of the universe above God's revelation of himself. And that is essentially what Immanuel Kant is doing. And if you get nothing else today, know that the problem with Immanuel Kant's view and all of these other false views was that they put man's knowledge above God's revelation of himself. Anytime that happens, you've, you've missed it completely. And uh, that's what we have here. So imagine then, God has revealed himself, as we're going to talk about later, in general revelation... Right, where there's just, we have the universe and all, all that. Well, we can't know God then even through general revelation in Kant's view because our minds are shaping the realities. Uh, further, Jesus Christ is God incarnate in the universe. We can't know him either because his revelation is within that universe. Um, Kant really messed things up for us. Are there any questions on Kant? I know that this is a little bit of a, a large bite to chew here. Any questions or thoughts on Kant? All right. Uh, by the way, Kant meant well, but as we say, um, you know, if you're going to try to know God on your own, you can't do it. <laughs> I did not think anybody would laugh at that. I was really just giving you that so you would remember. Man, I'm, I'm funnier than I think I am. Uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher's word to say in theology. I like to teach on Schleiermacher just so I can say his name. Uh, you'll note that Schleiermacher comes just right after Immanuel Kant, and he totally bought in to Immanuel Kant's view of the separation between the noumenal realm and the phenomenal realm. 
Um, please forgive me, I know that these are confusing words. Um, but he totally bought into whole, Kant's whole idea that man was the center of knowledge. Now, the implication of Kant's thinking was that, okay, then I can't know things rationally. I can't know God rationally because he's in the noumenal realm. And my logic is limited to the phenomenal realm, which is completely different. So I can't really know God by rationality. And that was what Kant pushed. Well, so Schleiermacher comes around and he says, all right, if I can't know God rationally, then maybe I can know him through my feelings. This should sound vividly familiar. Schleiermacher developed an entire theological system based on feelings. Now, feelings are not bad. I think we sometimes give them a bad rap. Uh, God created us to be beings of emotion. Uh, God speaks to me and I have, I have emotional reaction to that. In fact, I think he can even encourage my emotions and he can touch my emotions. However, my emotions are my emotions. And they are not a source of knowledge about God. They are my reaction to God's move in my life. And so it's really important that we make that distinction. Schleiermacher did not. Schleiermacher did not believe that Scripture had any value for rationally revealing God to us. However, he believed that reading Scripture kind of gave us this idea of you kind of have this feeling of dependence on God when you read Scripture. You get that warm, fuzzy feeling. Well, he says, well, that Scripture was good for that, but not for rational knowledge. So that meant that none of the miracles, nothing actually mentioned in Scripture meant anything. It was only you got a good feeling when you read it. I think that's interesting. It's kind of scary. Um, his whole idea was that we, we knew God as we, as we focused on the feeling of absolute dependence. Um, and he had this idea that, well, we're, we're absolutely dependent on God as the creator of the universe and as the sustainer. So if I just feel absolutely dependent on the absolute, which he didn't necessarily give a personal description. He didn't necessarily think God was a person. Um, if we just feel absolutely dependent, then we reflect on those feelings, and that's how we do theology. So once again, we have that whole issue, much like we had with Kant, where you are the center of knowing, except now we've gone the next... Rationality is not even included. Now it's just about feelings. You may not realize it, but Schleiermacher, be his name all so unfamiliar, he has affected you. Um, he has affected contemporary theology in big ways. Um, and it is, it's not something easily dealt with. Um, we have seen this in, uh, in various uh, charismatic movements, though I don't want to say all. I know that there have been some charismatic movements that I believe were, were still grounded in Scripture, even, you know, even, if, even if there was some difference of opinion on how I think certain things should be applied. They still appreciated Scripture. And then there, there are some who, who have pushed Scripture to the side and said, it's only about my experience. Um, you know, I was going to give a quote, but I haven't actually... I don't want to misquote that. But I, I've heard some quote-unquote theologians make comments like, well, I don't have to answer to the person with theological knowledge because I've had an experience with God. That's a little scary because what we're doing is we're setting up our experience, our feeling, our knowledge sometimes above God's revelation of himself. Yeah? Do you think he's had a I think there's a both and answer there. Um, he's certainly he's operating off of presuppositions that came his way from Immanuel Kant and, and some cultural things through the Enlightenment. But um, uh, and he has in fact uh, radically affected 
thinking in the culture. However, I don't think we can blame it just on him because we have moral relativism uh, has come along as a result also of Kant, but we have plenty of other um, existential philosophers and, and others who have, who, have, who have played a part in that. He's, he's not alone in it, but he certainly played a big part. As far as the Christian realm, I think he is, um, what's the word, the maybe most wanted on it. He, he's the one who's maybe caused the most damage, in my opinion, in the theological realm, um, but, and, and certainly has affected culture on it. Um, but anytime you start putting the human knower as the center, well, then you have various opinions on what truth is. Well, if we're going to hold true to our thinking, to that thinking, uh, then we have to say, well, all of them are equally valid. Well, then immediately then it's not important what's true because no one is going to say what's true. It becomes, am I making people feel right? Which really, if you carry out the thinking fully, that doesn't matter either. But it, it's what people still hang on to. Yeah. Because you can so easily fall into that. Well, how do you feel about that? Yeah. Instead of what do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Which you can you can ask how do you feel about that, and it's not a wrong question. It depends on how we apply it. I, I have, I mean, it's, it's all right to say, wow, this is hard for me to swallow. I'll, when, I'm, when I'm talking to somebody about God's sovereignty versus man's free will, I want to see how they're feeling about it, because I think sometimes that we have an, a negative reaction to something that is a, a positive thing. And so I still kind of try to, it's, not, it's all right to find out, it's all right to deal with that. It's, it's certainly it's part of who we are. Emotion is important. We can't forget it. But it's whether or not you hold that up as, all right, now is this more important than the truth? Um, and this is a scary time for our culture right now in which we push the truth aside because of feeling. Uh, happens all the time. Um, I, I've experienced it myself. Um, so anyway, that's Friedrich Schleiermacher. Um, so, so anyway, can we see though how each of these negative views come about as man is set up as the center of knowledge? Let's look at a couple more here. Uh, Karl Barth, Karl Barth, man, an interesting anomaly in Christian history. Um, I've given a little bit of background about Karl Barth in here. Um, If I sound excited about Karl Barth, it's not because I think he's a wonderful theologian. I have plenty of things to disagree with about him. But something happened with Karl Barth that was good. Um, Certainly, mostly, I shouldn't say most, there was a lot of bad things, but Karl Barth made some positive changes, and I'm going to explain why. Karl Barth made the comment, he says, I believe that God is wholly other. He's just completely transcendent, utterly transcendent was the word that he used. God is just something so big. So how am I, as as a man, as a mere human being, going to know him based on me going to him? Um, It's like like trying to pole vault the Atlantic. I'm, I'm just not going to be able to do it. That's a huge leap. For Karl Barth, who has been raised in the whole liberal, you know, man-centered theology, to be able to say, I just, we can't know God on our own. It's huge. And he has actually taken a step against cultural trends to say, we've got to have God's help in order to know him. Now, he did not go the full way and say, so we're going to trust scripture, we're going to trust this, we're just going to go on everything God says. But he did recognize that it wasn't about me anymore. Um, so I want you to keep in mind, uh, as, as evangelicals, we will speak negatively of Karl Barth. Um, and, that, and appropriately so. He has done some things that weren't really right. However, as an academe, you should be able to look at him and say, thank you, Karl Barth, for bringing back a solid view of, of God's revelation, or a, at least a more solid view, uh, that no one else would even breach. Uh, by the way, side note, a history on Karl Barth. Uh, right before the First World War, Kaiser Wilhelm uh, goes about to all of the uh, German professors and says, I want you to sign these theologians, liberal theologians, who are believing in like a better world and all this hope of the future. And he says, I want you guys to sign this document supporting my war policy, which was essentially um, predecessor to Hitler's, where he's just going to go and we're just going to take over whatever we want. Um, and all these guys were like, cool, great. So all these guys who were so much about 
uh, nonviolence, you know, hope of the future, the world is getting better. They signed this document that says, yeah, let's just go kill anybody we want. Um, Karl Barth looked at that. He says, what kind of theology is that for these men to be able to so quickly throw it out the window to grasp onto whatever the cultural trend was, to whatever was convenient at the time? And so that caused him to radically uh, reconceive his theology. He left a lot of liberal thinking. Now, the problem here was that he believed, and in a sense, we could take this as good, but he says, in his view, God is revealed preeminently in Jesus Christ, and then secondarily in the Bible, and then maybe thirdarily, if we should say, in preaching. He didn't believe that the Bible itself was God's word. He kind of believed that maybe it kind of became God's word as you're reading and something miraculous happens now and then, but he didn't believe it was inerrant. He didn't believe that it was fully inspired. He believed that God had to do something kind of magic to it to make it worthwhile. Now, over time, there are some say that he, he moved more towards a more, a more biblical view of Scripture, but most of his theology, not so much. Um, and an interesting thing, he also had, I don't think I have this on here because there wasn't a lot of room. Um, he, he believed in what we call dialectical theology. He believed that there was this is and is not about everything. It's kind of confusing, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But he says, well, God revealed himself in Christ, but he was also hidden in Christ. And God reveals himself in Scripture, but he's also hidden. And so everything that's there is kind of confusing. And he, he just was. A, it seemed like he was just afraid to go all the way and say, you know what? God revealed himself, and I'm going to trust that. And he just didn't want to make that leap completely. However, he did a big favor to academic theology by saying, maybe I'm not actually the center of knowledge here. So, maybe God is the center of knowledge. Now, Karl Barth was the, um, the kind of the, what's the word? He was the Paul to the Timothy of Thomas Torrance. Uh, Thomas Torrance is the guy I did my thesis on, so he's the guy I think of. Thomas Torrance, Karl Barth was his hero. Thomas Torrance went the next step and he said, wait a minute. We know God as he reveals himself to us, not as we, as we know him. And uh, he just took it the next step and I, I think became orthodox where Bart wasn't quite there. Bart was what he called himself neo-orthodox. So anyway, uh, he believed that scripture became God's word and is not infallible. Can, can you see how he certainly has not gone all the way? He hasn't fully grasped onto the idea that, hey, God is the one completely responsible for revealing himself to me. But he took a move, he moved towards that. Yeah? You can see, I think, this a little bit in the emergent church. Yeah, a little bit. Although I would say they're even more liberal than this normally. But that's. Yeah. That, that, that would be there. Very, now, and I do want to make a comment on emergent church. It is, it is a huge mixture of a lot of different theological frameworks. Um, but there is this idea of relativism, uh, of a lot of Schleiermacherian, you like that word, that's fun, Schleiermacherian theology in, in a lot of emergent churches, the idea of feeling being really important, and also this idea that scripture becomes something to me, uh, as opposed to being a rational, valid source of knowledge. Um, I would say, though, they would go even more towards the Schleiermacherian thinking than the Bartian. I love these Ians. Um, <laughs> So anyway, um, making sense there, this is still a false view of Revelation. But man, it's, it's an improvement. And there we go. Rudolf Boltmann, we're going to buzz through a couple of these. Rudolf Boltmann uh, also didn't get things exactly right because he believed in this, what he called the scientific worldview. Like he kind of looked at like, ah, oh, well see, now we have science. So we know some things. We know miracles don't happen. Ha, ha, ha. We know certain things just, well, you know, back in the olden days they had to make up stuff and so they made up these miracles because they needed to feel better about themselves. But we know that doesn't happen um, because we have this scientific worldview, which is really haughty in my opinion. He didn't, wasn't, he was kind of cocky in my opinion with the science. But um, he, he says, so, but, I, but he was a professor of New Testament, so uh, he couldn't just throw all that out. Um, so he's like, I've got to find a way for this New Testament to mean something. And so Rudolf Boltmann kind of becomes an existentialist. Um, 
And uh, more on that maybe at another time. But um, he says, we've got to find a new way of understanding the New Testament. Because he, he, he didn't want to just throw it out. So he said, well, what we've got to do, see, we have a scientific worldview. And the New Testament was written with a mythological worldview, in his opinion. That there was, you know, we have these miracles. It sounds like mythology. So in his view, what, he, what we needed to do was, was quote-unquote, demythologize Scripture. So that we could get down to that existential truth that was there. Which is really, by the way, it, it doesn't make sense. So if you're thinking this, what? Uh, it doesn't make sense. It, existential thinking doesn't make sense. Uh, this whole idea of being and non-being, it really, it's, it's crazy. Um, so you can try to understand it, but you'll never quite get there because neither does Boltmann. Um, but Boltmann had this idea that, well, what we have then in the, in, in the gospel, as we strip away all the miracle of it, what we have is God calling us to self-actualization. Say, so what's that? Well, that's his idea of like, you really, you take responsibility for your guilt, for your action, and for your death. And we say, okay, so what does that mean? Well, well, that just means that we, you just really are. You know, you exist. Mm. Um, there's more to it than that, but essentially he's saying, well, what, what Christ was doing, he's, he's an example of exist, you know, existential self-actualization. He takes responsibility. Responsibility for what? Well, it's responsibility um, for your action. Action to what? What, is it, what? what does the action matter? If there's no purpose in life, well, well, the purpose is, is, is existence, and so your being is important, and so you have to take action and responsibility. For what? For yourself. And it really is kind of a, a circular motion. Um, and by the way, existential thought, now I don't think Boltmann would say this, but if you, if you take some of the existential thinkers to their full reason, like, like Nietzsche, then it becomes, well, I could, um, and th- this is, Horrid. They would say it really just matters whether or not you take action in the universe. So you could um, help a, uh, a crippled person ap- across the street. That would be taking action. Or you could beat the person to death. And it would be taking action and both things would be self-actualization. And so in their mind, while they wouldn't necessarily say you should go and do that, philosophically that was the implication, was that it really didn't matter what you do if you were just taking action. So you could kill people or you could help people and it really didn't matter because you were self-actualized. Um, it's pretty scary. It's really scary. In fact, if you've ever um, seen the Alfred Hitchcock movie Rope, anybody remember that? You might remember then the movie, uh, Sandra Bullock was in a movie just a couple of years ago called Murder by Numbers. And in both stories, you have these two guys who have been reading existential theology or philosophy, and they want to take action. And so they randomly choose someone to kill. And they just kill them and try to get away with it. And their whole thing was like, I didn't hate the person, it didn't matter, it, was, it had to be completely random, but I was actualized by killing them. Really scary. But that actually is where existential thought uh, takes us. So anyway, um, Rudolf Boltmann uh, had this whole idea of a scientific worldview, and so we couldn't have a mythological thinking of the New Testament, so we had to reevaluate it into, or demythologize, in existential terms. So then all of a sudden, then, the gospel is gone from this. The whole idea of sin can't exist because in the existential thought, there is no such thing as sin. The whole idea of, of, of salvation or a bodily resurrection can't happen because he believes in a scientific worldview that in his opinion rules it out. Can you see, once again, we are back to a theologian saying, I am the center of knowledge. I will trust my science above your revelation, God. And that's exactly what Boltmann is doing. Um, we're back to it again. Bart made a leap in the right direction, but here we are again, back in the man as the center of knowledge. And can you see the radical horror that could occur if we followed this out? By the way, I don't think Boltmann would necessarily say, ah, go beat somebody to death, but it would be the, would be the result of his thinking. Paul Tillich, also existential, um, he believed that religion had to do with being and non-being. In the same way we have, by the way, once again, existential thought doesn't make sense. So if you're kind of like, what? That's the right response. Um, uh, Being and non-being, he believed that revelation came through symbols, which are finite things that cause the material to point beyond to something different. So he had this idea that that the the absolute or the depth dimension, as he called it, um, or maybe, he wouldn't maybe say God in the personal sense, but 
whatever it was that was beyond the universe, wanted to break through to kind of be, you know, cool. Um, that doesn't make sense, I know. Um, and he believed that there were symbols that kind of broke through and helped you understand that there was something more to the universe. Um, and so he would say maybe a cross would be an example of a symbol. It's something, it is a finite reality, an object, that is a symbol of something that, that somehow the depth dimension can break through and give you, it's kind of like you hold onto a cross and you get this mm, feeling like there's something more out there when I think about the cross. Or, or maybe it's a stoplight. And you think, man, stoplight, the green, and eh, it's just connected to go in reality. You know, that sounds silly. But um, he believed that the depth dimension, which you could stretch to say was God, breaks through the material realm to cause reorientation of thought as a result of the breakthrough of the infinite God in the finite. Yeah? Um, when did these two guys, when did, when did their philosophy come into general? You could say that elements of Tillich were kind of always hanging about because people sometimes hold on to relics and symbols Anyway, I think he was applying it to existential theology. Um, well, this is 1965 when he died. So um, I, I would say in an academic realm, it was there you know, right while he was alive. But um, as far as affecting the, the general realm, just the lay person, is that what you're asking? I don't think it was that late. Um, uh, well, or that early. I think it was... Well, that might be about right. Let me think. I would have to look at specific, specific books. I'm not sure of that. Um, probably more into the 50s, I want to say. Uh, I think with Boltmann especially, I think it was 50s and even into the 60s that he was coming about. Um, I think he even spilled over in the 70s a little bit. Let me, let me see when his death was, and i got to see if I can trace back and remember. Yeah, I think he was still writing into the 70s, because I've, um, I've seen pictures that based on his clothes, I think he was at a lecture or something, it looks like he was in the 70s. Um, I realize we've, we've gone through a lot of these false views, but what I wanted to do was be able to point out some of these, uh, because they affect us. Um, we have, um, even if indirectly, there are people that hold on to views of symbol as being somehow this symbol means something for reality other than, other than temporal reality. And, and sometimes people want to uh, not accept the miracles of the New Testament, so they'll say, ah, but it means something to me, and so they, they start trying to reinterpret it in kind of an existential language. Well, they might not be pulling out Boltmann books and saying that, but it's there. So I thought it was important for us to understand these false views of revelation. Now, what we're going to do now is try to, kind of try to move towards a biblical definition. Uh, I have several different ones up here. First, I have Ryrie's. Uh, he says, revealing, a disclosure of something previously unknown. That's really good. Uh, uh, Shad says, revelation is any uh, species of knowledge of which God is the ultimate source and cause. In a sense, everything that in reality is, is revelation. So in his opinion, because God has created the universe, then everything, in some sense, is a revelation of him. Interesting. Dan, what's the term I, I think just uh, in the same way of um, we, might have the, we might have philosophy, and that's a realm of knowledge or a species of knowledge. And uh, we might have science, and that would be another one, and maybe, yeah, geology. Every, that everything, and what he's saying is, I think, essentially... Um, Divine revelation, especially general revelation, is, is everywhere in every bit of knowledge. Uh, Lewis Perry Schaefer says, uh, the divine act of communicating to man what otherwise man would not know. This is a pretty good one, in my opinion. I'm listing a lot of them so we can kind of get some thoughts. But can you see what, what he's getting at here? Schaefer is getting at the idea that we wouldn't know it on our own. Much like Bart said, we, we can't get there on our own. This is an important one. Um, by the way, I'm not necessarily agreeing or disagreeing with any of these. I'm just kind of saying there's, there's some important pieces in all of these. The act of God whereby he discloses himself or communicates the truth to the mind 
whereby he makes manifest to his creatures that which could not be known in any other way. This is Henry Thiessen. This is a pretty good definition. Emphasizes that we wouldn't know it in any other way, and emphasizes that it is God disclosing himself, and it even specifically mentions, to your mind. This is uh, in opposition to uh, Schleiermacher, which would say, only to your feelings. This is a pretty good one. Uh, then we have here, uh, Dr. Morrison mentions God's redemptive self-disclosure to, hum- to humanity to be known as he is, not only who God is, but what he has done and why. God's redemptive self-disclosure to humanity to be known as he is. Um, another way of saying this is that we know God as he reveals himself to us. Um, this is very, very, very important. Because we have to make the decision, I'm reiterating, I know, am I going to trust my feelings and my knowledge or am I going to trust God? Um, this is interesting um, because then we have to understand that we know any object as it reveals itself. Um, when I'm studying, let me think of another way to say this, if I'm going to study art, I don't use the same system of organization as I would uh, for studying biology. There is an order in both of them. I believe art beauty has a certain type of order. But you, you can't necessarily say, oh, but it, you know, all these things. We have to know art as it reveals itself. I know that's not really the right way because it's not a person revealing. But we have to go to the object and say, this is the object. We're going to study it. I'm not going to go and, and look at a piece of art and say, I feel this way about it. So that must mean that it always makes people feel this way. No. You look at it and say, well, you know, in, in Impressionist painting, we have uh, blurred lines and we have this and that. Well, these are specific things about it that might affect a feeling, but might be different in various people. So in the same way with God, we have to say, God reveals himself as he is. We have to take the knowledge that he, that he has. I don't go to him and say, all right, in the same way that I study a rock, I'm going to study you. No, because God, is, God has, has personhood. He has uh, personality. So I, I can't go with this limited tool of science. I have to go and know him as he properly reveals himself. And so this is why we have revelation. Uh, so anyway, key thing, I know I mentioned several different definitions, but key thing is in revelation, it is God revealing himself to us. We know him as he reveals himself. That is fundamental. So what we're going to talk about now is the difference between general and special revelation. We've spoken about what revelation is, and we talked about the importance of that it is God's re- revelation of himself to us. Different theologians say it in different ways, but that's what matters, is that it's him revealing himself to us, not us getting revelation about him by ourselves. Um, so anyway, let's talk about general revelation. Forms of general, general revelation. First of all, general revelation occurs through nature. Uh, Paul specifically talks about this in Romans. We have the order of the universe, the existence of the universe, and we can say, wow, God has revealed himself. He must be a big God to have created this massive universe. He must be powerful, and he must have order because everything seems to be working very, very well. It occurs through our own human existence. Um, we see this with, uh, in Genesis, Psalms, Romans once again, that we exist. There's, that's not only, our own, not only the world's revelation, the general revelation of the universe itself, but us, we, we're here and we, we have a personality, we have the ability to know, um, we, have, we have emotion, we have, we have our own order. There's something about us. We could, we could take this even further. And I think Lewis goes to the C.S. Lewis talks about um, the argument from desire, where he kind of says, man, I, I, I know that this world is not right, and I have hunger for something different. And he says, well, I have hunger for food, and there is food. And I, have, I get thirsty, and there's such a thing as water. And his argument is that I know that this is not how it's supposed to be. So there must be such a thing as heaven, or must be such a thing as God to make things right. Um, there's much more to his argument. I'm not doing it justice. But he has a very interesting argument there. and He's really going back to this uh, revelation through our own human existence. 
Um, also, we have uh, general revelation occurs through God's providential dealings, his continual upholding and provision for the universe as a whole. Uh, we see this where God just takes care of the universe. He keeps it moving. Sometimes he does providential works. In fact, I've, I've experienced this where um, a couple of years ago when I was jobless, and one of the many times I've been jobless, um, and, uh, and someone came to me and said, I have this check for you, Dan. I want you to take this. And I said, no, I'm okay. I have money in the bank. I'm going to be fine. I didn't have much money in the bank, but I was like, I got a plan how my job's going to all line up when I get this job and this happens. He says, God wants me to give you this check. And it was for a certain amount of money. The next day, I believe, maybe it's two days later, my car breaks down. I have it in the shop, the exact amount of money to pay for it. That's Providence. And that, in my opinion, is a form of general revelation where I wouldn't call that a miracle. Uh, God did not uh, send a hand to write on the wall and tell me what it was for. I would have called that a miracle. This was the natural order of the universe operating in such a way as to work things out for my good and for his glory. Um, providential dealings. Also, it occurs in God's faithful working out of his plan. Um, you might also see this in Providence, but he's talked about uh, he's talked in prophecy of we're going to do this and this is going to happen and then it happens. And it might not necessarily be miraculous. Sometimes prophecy has miracles related to it, as in the incarnation especially. Um, but sometimes it's just God's made a plan, he's told us what it was, and then it happens. Well, that's, that's general revelation. That's good news. Um, or in, that's actually would involve special revelation because of prophecy. If it's just his plan working out, it's providence, or it's, it's just his plan working out. He might not have told us all of it, but it's general revelation. Let's move on a little bit. So general revelation, God's revelation to man available to everyone at all times in nature. This is important. Available to everyone at all times in nature. You can be uh, on the other side of the world. You could be in Papua, Indonesia, where our, um, our missionary Stephen Crockett is, and you can see that there is order in the universe, that the universe exists, that I have a human existence that is different than the animals. Um, it is available to everyone at all times in nature. Special revelation is a little bit different. Special revelation is God's word or his miraculous revelation to man. Um, a miracle is a special revelation. Um, Christ's incarnation is the special revelation. God's word, scripture, is special revelation. Um, the importance of distinguishing between the two is fundamental because we could say general revelation exists and it's great, but it is not enough for you to have saving knowledge of Christ. Um, I believe, based on Romans, that general revelation is enough to condemn you. But that's it. Because um, Paul talks about how they, they worship the creation rather than the creator. There was this wonderful creation that God has given us for us to be able to say, what a great God this must be. But what we did was say, all right, well then let's just worship the moon or the sun because it gives source of light and all these great things. And rather than say, what or who created the sun, we said, the sun's great, let's worship that. That's enough, in my opinion, well, not just in my opinion, in Paul's, in the word of God's opinion, to say, your pride has gotten in the way. You are going to be condemned based on that knowledge. It's, it's, it's enough to say, that's it. You, you had your chance. You're done. Um, I believe that if, if, if a person was to look at general revelation and say, nah, there must be a God of creation. I don't think that would happen without the Holy Spirit's work. But if it did, I believe God would make sure that that person heard the gospel somehow. Um, I'm a bit of a that. But God draws you, and he'll make sure that, he may, that his children hear the word. Um, so that's what we have in special revelation, though, is, is his very special, direct revelation to man uh, in Christ or in Scripture or in sometimes other miracles. So the extent of general revelation, let's talk about that. Uh, we, we can know that God exists. Yeah. That's all right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does he, re- does he necessarily reveal the gospel of Christ to, to an unbeliever in his lifetime? Or is it just 
He can. I. I'll, I'll defer to Alan if he has any comments. I don't. I don't think that God is obligated to do that. If you already have general revelation, I don't think He's obligated to make sure that you hear the specific gospel of Jesus. Um, I'm not sure everybody would agree with me on that. Any comments on that? Am I? I agree with Dan on that. Yeah. Um, and, and the way you know that is because there are people that are like David never heard the Oh, they get general revelation. Absolutely. I, mean special, I didn't mean general. I meant special. Um, okay. We think of special revelation. I might be confusing myself because maybe I. The question back here that was just asked was it about general or was it about special? It was about special, but but special revelation. Every other Um, so the extent of general revelation, we can know God exists based on that. We can know some things about God's character. You could argue if you see certain things working out a certain way. Uh, we can see that God is a moral judge. If we look at Romans 1, we know that God is the sustainer of the world and that there is enough in general revelation to render us without excuse, which is what Paul talks about, what we've I've already touched on a good bit. Uh, some factors limiting or limiting general revelation. First of all, human depravity suppressing the truth, as we see in Romans 1, 16 through 23. Um, I'm evil. I'm not gonna get what I, what God necessarily wants me to get out of Revelation on my own, because I'm prideful. I'm selfish. I'm gonna find the worst possible way to interpret it, because I'm evil. Um, huge factor limiting general revelation. Also, it does not have the specifics of the salvation message. You've got to know that Jesus died to pay your sin debt and that he was resurrected. This is important. So anyway, limits of general revelation. So let's talk a little bit about special revelation. Uh, it is direct communication uh, sometimes. Uh, we see where sometimes God speaks directly. Either Jesus or, or even God from heaven is putting things down. Uh, Moses, Ten Commandments, God is just directly saying, this is what we're talking about here. Uh, sometimes it can be miracles or acts in history where God just moves in a special, miraculous way. Um, acts 2 is a good example. Uh, Day of Pentecost. Um, the... Uh, the Incarnation is certainly... Um, we sometimes talk about the Incarnation as being the, the prime miracle because it's, it's not just God talking about Himself. It's, it's God showing up in our space-time continuum. 
Um, so we see that in John 1. Actually, really, John talks about this so wonderfully. If you read the first chapter of John, um, it is just it's good news. Um, and then, of course, we have it in Scripture. Second uh, Timothy and Second Peter both talk about this, how Scripture is God's special revelation to man. I mean, you all know most of this, but i got some texts on there. And that's, uh, that's where we're at for today. Now, a couple of uh, comments that I want to I wanna wrap up with. I would really like you to, um, to be able to have this conversation with uh, maybe a person who's teetering on some liberal thinking or maybe a non-believer. Uh, even for a non-believer, if you're going to talk about the value of Scripture, you can, you can sit down. I've heard a lay person who is not very knowledgeable, much less knowledgeable than you all, have a conversation about, you know, somebody saying, ah, well, how do you know that Scripture isn't, you know, changed over time and blah, 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 blah. And, and this guy who really, I mean, not a theologically knowledgeable person says, well, you know, I just think if he's God, then he can protect his word, right? That's a really good thought. It, it all comes back to, is God powerful enough to reveal himself? This affects everything from your personal time with God to emergent church guys talking about like, well, but we've misunderstood this and that. Just wait a minute. If God is God, he can reveal himself. Don't let anybody talk you out of that. Don't let anybody get you confused because you can go right back to that. You can say, if God is God, he is powerful enough to say who he is. And I don't have to worry about scripture being conditioned over time. I don't have to worry about this happening or that happening. I know that God has revealed himself and he is God. He is powerful enough to do that. Uh, so when you have this temptation to be like, well, I just really feel like God should be this way, always defer. You know this, but always defer to the Word of God itself. Don't let anybody argue with you about like, well, that just doesn't seem fair to me. Well, it doesn't matter how you feel like it's going to be. God is God and He reveals Himself about Himself. And so it's a pretty simple argument. Not everybody likes it, but it's a pretty simple way to say, wait, God is God. He can say what he wants to say, and it doesn't matter what what I or you think about it. So anyway, let's pray. Father, thank you for the chance to um, to know you. I thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, and though we are undeserving, God, you have showed us who you are. I thank you for that. I pray that we would be tenacious uh, in explaining your revelation. I pray that we would be tenacious in sharing it. I pray that you would be glorified as we study your revelation and come to know you better. We love you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Have a great week. Thank you very much.